You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. I need to, to share with you some just tragic news that I learned of this past February. Jinko jeans are going out of business. <laughs> if you don't remember Jinko, let me show you a picture of what Jinko jeans look like. These are really popular in the 90s. I thought about having you raise your hand if you owned a pair of these, but I figured the shame would be... Now, I remember when I was in high school in the 90s, these were like the jeans. You really wanted a pair of these. And my parents wouldn't let me have any this baggy, so I got the baggiest pair I could have. You know, Back then, I was thin. Not so much today. Back then, I was thin, but I was wearing pants that were like a couple sizes too big, so they would almost kind of look like Jinko jeans. Now, I was, I was a little impressed that it wasn't until February of 2018 that Jinko is going out of business. I'm impressed that they've hung around this long because that was a cultural fad that did not last very long. Now, some of us, we remember this fad, and some of you, you were maybe a little bit more experienced, a little bit older, and so this fad wasn't as big a deal, but maybe, let me show you another picture of maybe a fad that was kind of a big deal (laughs) back in your day, right? Bell bottoms, right? And it's kind of the same concept. Now, what's funny to me about bell-bottoms is the first time that I remember ever seeing a pair of bell-bottoms, I was a kid, and I was watching television with my dad, and my dad loves Star Trek. And we're watching one of the old Star Trek movies or episodes, and the people on the Spaceship Enterprise, which is hundreds of years in the future, were wearing bell-bottoms. And I said said to my dad, they're like running and their pants were flapping, and I said to my dad as a kid, I was like, what's wrong with their pants? And he said, those are bell-bottoms. And I said, what are bell-bottoms? He explained, those were really popular when I was younger. Now, here's what's, what's funny about that. Someone putting together a television program about something hundreds, year, hundreds of years in the future said, these are still going to be in style. <laughs> 200, 300 years from now. When they weren't in style 10 years later, right? And there are things that become popular when we're young, that we think this is always going to be cool. This is always going to be in style. You talk to any person about which music you think they think is the best music, it's most likely the music that came out when they were between the ages of 13 and 18. Because that's the music they came of age to. And every generation thinks the music of today is just awful, right? But the music when they were a teenager, that was the real stuff. Fads come and go. Trends go through, through changes. Jinko jeans came and went. Bell bottoms came and went. Hopefully skinny jeans are going to come and go. <laughs> skinny jeans is not an easy fad for me to get behind, all right? <laughs> skinny jeans to me are just any jeans I've worn since 30, okay? <laughs> These fads come and go. And what we're living through right now The cultural moment that we're in right now is that it's currently very popular in our culture to be radically inclusive, to be incredibly inclusive in our culture and our society. Now, there's there's no doubt that the reason that we are so radically inclusive in our society right now in this cultural moment is that a generation or two ago, There was a very strong push for people who were incredibly exclusive. There was a major abuse of authority by people in power to to separate the races, to try to segregate, 
We experienced World War II where we fought against the Nazis who were trying to get away with every Jew. We went through the, the movement of racial equality where it used to be common practice in our nation where there was this segregation. And so in response to those things a generation or two ago, we are like a pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other, trying to find a way that we can be all-inclusive. And so right now in our cultural moment, what is currently very popular is to be radically inclusive. And in this age of radical inclusiveness, the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ feels a little out of place to the the current culture. Almost as much out of place as someone wearing a pair of Jinko jeans or bell bottoms. Now I thought about getting like a pair of Jinko jeans to wear today. And it would have been so out of place, right? It would have seemed so strange if I'd walked in wearing that, right? (laughs) For a lot of people, the message that I stand and preach on a regular basis here on Sunday mornings is just as out of step with culture as some of those clothing items might be. To them, that is old-fashioned. And this morning, I'm not going to soften the edges for you at all. I'm going to be upfront about the fact that the message of Jesus Christ is radically exclusive. Very exclusive. Christianity makes several exclusive change claims. And for many people that, that think they like the teachings of Jesus, and they like the message of, of the gospel, and they like the things that Jesus said about generosity, they, they can't get past his exclusive claims. And this morning, I'm going to read you what I think is probably Jesus' most exclusive claim. The clearest, most exclusive claim. So I'm not going to try to, hey, let me just show you the soft stuff. I'm going to, this is Jesus' most exclusive claim, and then I'm going to show you why it is the truth and how we can move past it and recognize that this exclusive claim does not have to be a hindrance to faith, even in our current culture. So let me read you John 14, verses 1 to 7. Jesus is having the final meal with his disciples before he'll be arrested. He says these words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Now, if, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you, 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 don't, you don't feel like you can believe. You feel like you, you've got some questions. I want you to know that Thomas, in the Bible, that, that he is your friend. He is a skeptic. He asks some hard questions. He doubts some things that Jesus says to Jesus' face. And so it's, it's fitting that the next verse is, Thomas's question, and he's representing you, okay, as the skeptic. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we, whither, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we go the way? Thomas is saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? In verse 6 is Jesus' exclusive claim in response to, to doubting Thomas. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, you should have known 
my Father also, and henceforth you know him and have seen him. This is an incredibly exclusive claim that Jesus makes. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And there is definite articles there. He's not saying, I am a way, a life. He's saying, I'm the way. And if there was any confusion about the definite article there, he then says, no man comes to the Father but by me. The only way to know God is to know me, Jesus says. I am your pathway to knowing God. Now, for many people, this is bigoted. For many people to say that Jesus is the only way, it's almost religiously racist or culturally intolerant. And because of the intolerant message of the gospel, the exclusive claims of the gospel, many people are uncomfortable with not only the message of Christianity, but with Christians themselves. Recently, uh, McLean's Magazine in Canada did a poll uh, of Canadians. And they found that 30% of Canadians were most uncomfortable around evangelical Christians, which was close to the figures that they found for people who are uncomfortable around drug addicts or child abusers. Man, they're really making some sweeping generalizations there, aren't they? To put everybody in those categories. But they're saying, listen, Christians make me uncomfortable. They're culturally intolerant. Now, Canada is quite a bit more progressive than we are here in the United States, but Canada is kind of a forecast of where the U.S. is headed, and Europe is even further down the road. And so in a culture like Canada's, where there's this radical inclusivity, everybody is welcome, everybody's idea is true, the idea of Christ's message being so exclusive is it makes people feel uncomfortable. Now, I want you to recognize that our culture influences us, okay? At one point, some of us thought bell-bottoms were really cool, right? At one point, we thought that Jinko jeans were, you had to have those. And right now, our culture is influencing people to say, you need to be inclusive of everyone. And because we are putting away with religion, because we're going to push religion out of the public square, it'll be a place that welcomes everyone. And I want to challenge that premise, okay? That's a misconception. Because the lack of religion does not have some monopoly on inclusiveness. In fact, the lack of religion can lead to extreme exclusiveness. Last week I talked to you about Charles Darwin and his book on evolution, The Origin of the Species, and I told you that's not the full title of that book. Do you know what the full title of Darwin's book was, the original title? His original title was On the Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin was someone who did not believe in God, promoted this idea of evolution, said we don't need God in the public square, but he said these things point to the fact that there are some people that are better than others and we need to preserve them and not the other races. There's some people in the room that, that Darwin should have thought, you probably shouldn't reproduce. There's some people in, in the room this morning, Darwin would have said it would be better if you didn't have kids. 
In fact, let me read you this quote from his, his book, The Descent of Man. Man scans with scrupulous care the character and pedigree of his horses and cattle and dogs before he matches them. But when it comes to his own marriage, he rarely or never takes any such care. Both sexes ought to refrain from marriage and childbearing if they are in any marked degree inferior in body and mind. You know what he's saying? He's saying the same way that you breed animals is the way that we should look at re- reproduction here for humans. If anybody is not quite as smart, don't let them reproduce. And this led to the popularity of eugenics. Eugenics was incredibly popular before the advent of World War II. There were national eugenics conferences, international eugenics gatherings where people would gather together and they would talk about and discuss how can we help the human race move forward as a species by keeping those that are at the bottom end of the gene pool from reproducing. And some of the most extreme views that were born out of this was what prompted people to take anyone who might have a low IQ or some form of disability and force them to be sterilized so that they could not reproduce. Margaret Sanger, who was the the forerunner of Planned Parenthood and a main advocate for abortion in our country, was a fan of eugenics and felt that bringing abortion would be an effective way to cut down on the rapidly growing African-American population in the United States. And you know what has happened? Exactly that. There is a greater percentage of African-American children aborted through Planned Parenthood than any other nationality. So here are people that have taken religion out of the public square, taken religion out of the equation, and you know what they have done? They've become incredibly exclusive. We only want the best, the brightest, the people that look like us, the people that have this color hair, the people that have this color eyes. And this is what spawned the ethnic cleansing of Nazi Germany. It was eugenics to the extreme. And after World War II, this idea fell out of popularity. And today, we would say, who would believe that? Who would think that that is appropriate? So I want you to see that taking religion out of the public square does not lead to everybody's welcome. But rather, it was this that led to this idea of we shouldn't be segregating, we shouldn't be pushing people out, we should be welcoming everyone in. And so that brings us to our current cultural moment. In our current cultural moment, everyone's ideas are vindicated. And we have quotes like this one from Gandhi. My position is that all the great religions are fundamentally equal. Or from uh, some of your, some of you, your favorite theologian, Oprah, One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. This is our current cultural moment right now. This is what the the culture is influencing people towards. And I want you to recognize this is not a culture of inclusivism, but rather this is a culture of metaphysical pluralism. Last week, I challenged atheism, which is the belief that there is no God, and therefore all the religions are false. Metaphysical pluralism believes that every religion is right, and that's where we're at right now. 
because we want to be inclusive. Hey, everybody's right. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. When I, when I was a teenager, our church, we used to go in the neighborhoods around our church and we would hand out invitations to church. And I invited this guy to church and he said, I, I, don't, I don't believe in organized religion. Right? By the way, if anybody says that to you, say, hey, come to our church. We're not very organized. It's... <laughs> I don't believe in organized religion. I believe that all, all paths lead to God. And like, as a teenager, I was like, that what? I said, what do you mean? He says, I believe that, that who you believe is God is God, and who I believe is God. And wh- whatever you believe is, is religion, if that's your truth, it's your truth. And I was just like, okay, hold on. So you're telling me that if my religion was to worship that car over there, if I was wholehearted in my belief in that car, that I'd go to heaven? He said, yeah, because that's your religion. And this is where we're at right now. Not just that everyone is welcome, everyone is right. And I want you to see this big distinction here, okay? Because when I talk about the exclusive claims of the gospel, I'm not saying that the gospel leads us to say that there are people who aren't welcome. I want you to see that the gospel leads us to say that there are truths that are true. And there's a big difference. Cultural pluralism is the acceptance of different races and religions in society. And we should be welcoming to other races and other cultures and other religions. But metaphysical pluralism holds that every religion is true. And there's a difference. You see, you can welcome people without telling them everything you said is right. Cultural pluralism holds that people of all types are welcome to have a role in society. It's, it's, it's an attitude of welcoming people who think differently, act differently, look differently, speak differently. But metaphysical pluralism, going beyond the, the truths of physics, going beyond the truths, going beyond logic requires us to accept relativism, that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And it's referred to as metaphysical because it's beyond physics. It's beyond logic. It can't be logically worked out that we're all right. Correct? If I ask two of you, hey, I want you to take a guess. Am I wearing socks or not today? And one of you said, I don't think you're wearing socks today. And the other said, oh, Pastor Daniel's definitely wearing socks. One of you is wrong, right? Now, you can't tell right now, but I'm most definitely wearing socks, okay? Do I need to prove it to you? I am wearing socks. And so it can't be that both of us are right. There is truth, and that truth is absolute. Mark Clark, who wrote the book, The Problem of God, he talked about, you know, he, he came to believe in Christ. He'd been someone who did drugs. And so one Friday night, he's in a garage with a whole bunch of his friends. They're getting high. They're drinking. And then he gets saved. And, and for a couple weeks, he doesn't go back. But they're like, hey, man, what's going on with you? He tells them about Jesus. And they're like, we don't believe that. And he says, no, listen, you need to check it out. So they invite him back to the garage where they're all getting high. And he says in the book, he goes, I didn't smoke anything, but I probably got high just because there was so much smoke in the room. But he's telling them the reason that he believes in Jesus and how it's changed his life. And one of his friends says, man, there's no thing as absolute truth. 
And he said, well, do you believe that to be true? And the guy said, absolutely. (laughs) And when we say things like there's no such thing as absolute truth, we're making an absolute statement. So this idea of metaphysical pluralism is saying everybody's right, and it, it doesn't work out. Now, I can relate to where this comes from, okay? Nobody likes to be wrong, and nobody likes to make other people feel like they're wrong. And so there's this this desire that we have to be accommodating to everyone, to be welcoming to everyone, to be the opposite of, of segregationists or racists or people who are unwelcoming. And so we go to this extreme, and we don't have to go to this extreme of saying everybody's right. But I, I can see where it comes from. Yeah, I, I don't like going to the dentist, right? How many of you like going to the dentist? Nobody. Okay, that's what I thought. You know what? I would much rather go to the dentist myself than ever take my kids to the dentist. You know why? Because when I go to the dentist, it's unpleasant. They get on to me because I haven't been flossing. But when I take my kids to the dentist, I leave feeling like the worst parent. Because you sit the kids down, they're like, all right, Dad, um, what kind of things are we drinking at home? We're not letting them have fruit snacks, are they? Are we? And I'm like, oh, no, never. <laughs> the, the last time that we went, my son, Lincoln, he's four, and he gets in the chair, and the, the hygienist starts on the questions. You're like, okay, Dad, what kind of things are we drinking at home? And I had my, my answer ready, okay? I was ready to draw it out of the holster. We drink milk and water, sometimes juice, and on a special occasion, we'll have a soda. That's what I was going to say. But she said... She said, what are we drinking at home? And before I could say a thing, Lincoln goes, Sprite! <laughs> he outed me. <laughs> now, the reason they're telling me these things is because they want my kids' teeth to not rot. But it's uncomfortable sitting there and being like, yeah, I probably should do more. And I'm feeling horrible. I'm like, they're probably going to have like nine cavities because I didn't do this or that. And we didn't buy the little, you know flossing strips for kids and but then they check them out and they got no cavities and I'm like what did I feel awful about but I can relate to this feeling of not wanting to be judged I feel like you're absolutely wrong and out of that spirit I think is where we have this this idea of inclusivism in our culture we want to to welcome everyone we don't want to make anybody feel judged we want to make them feel like they have a a place and so we say well no one's wrong and, and we're treating the world like some of you treat Thanksgiving dinner with your family. You just nod with whatever your uncle says so there isn't an argument, right? This comes from a good place. We want to show others kindness and hospitality. And metaphysical pluralism partially springs out of our desire to be accommodating and inclusive. And by the way, being inclusive is not bad. It's not wrong to be welcoming. It's not wrong to have hospitality. In fact, the believers are instructed to do this. God calls us to do this very thing. In fact, in Jeremiah, there's this extreme example of this where people who were Jews were taken captive into another land and God tells them, while you're living with your captors, seek the peace or the shalom, the prosperity of the city where you're at. They're living amongst people who have captured them and conquered their land and they're supposed to work with them to build their cities. There are people all around us that they don't believe like we do. And we can respect them. 
and we can work alongside of them on projects that carry the same, or that we have the same mission, we're trying to accomplish the same things. We can stand together against things like eugenics. We can stand together against abortion. We can stand together to bring about the rights and prosperity of people. We can seek the flourishing with people who don't believe like us without saying what you believe is right and what I believe is right. And so we can be an inclusive people without being relative about truth. You see, our culture thinks that to live peaceably with one another, I have to agree with everything that you say. Our culture thinks that if I disagree with you, I hate you. Do you know that I love a lot of people that I disagree with a lot? And I disagree a lot with people that I love. I can disagree with you and still love you. And you can disagree with your neighbors and still love them. We don't have to reject hospitality, inclusivism. We don't have to reject equality and justice to hold on to the exclusive claims of the gospel. So I think part of it springs from this place where we want to be hospitable. We want to be peaceable. But then part of it also springs from a not-so-good place. See, metaphysical pluralism is very problematic. And while it can come from a desire to be accommodating, it can also come from a place of arrogance. One of the major illustrations that people believe that all religions are true used is the, 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 the parable of three blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've heard this before. The parable of three blind men and the elephant is that three blind men come, come upon an elephant. And they're not sure what is in front of them. So one blind man reaches out and he grabs a hold of the tail. And he says, oh, it's, it's a whip. The other blind man reaches out and he feels the side of the elephant. He says, it's a large wall. And the third blind man reaches out and he grabs a hold of the leg and he says, it's the, it's the trunk of a tree. And then the parable goes that we're all like the three blind men trying to find our way to God. We are all right in our own way. And all paths lead to the same direction. It's the idea that Gandhi had. All the major religions of the world are fundamentally true and leading in the same direction. Here's the problem with that parable. The parable is always told from the perspective of the narrator who is not blind and can see the elephant that the three blind men are trying to find. The narrator supposes that he knows the truth while everyone else is blind. And when we hold to this idea of everyone is right, you believe what you believe, you believe what you believe, that's actually a position of arrogance. You say, how can it be arrogant to tell everyone that they're right? Because you're saying, listen, I know that you're trying to find the truth, and I know that he's trying to find the truth, but I can tell you, even though you've done all of this searching, that you're both right, because I can see the whole And when we say all the religions of the world are true, that I believe that everyone's right, what we're saying is, I can see the big picture and you can't. I can see what's really happening and you can't. The rest of you are like blind men feeling an elephant. I'm the one that can see the elephant. Do you see how arrogant that is? Think about how offensive it would be to go to the Middle East where people have lost their loved ones to another group who believes differently than them and say to them, listen, it's all okay. We're all going to be in heaven together. You guys believe very different things, but it all leads to the same place. 
That'd be offensive. And when we set ourselves up as, listen, we know the real truth. We know what is really happening. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. And then we have some really tough decisions to make. If we're the ones that can say, listen, all three blind men are just trying to find the same thing. They're all trying to... Which, which people are headed in the right direction? All of them? Is every religion right? Is every religion true? What about Jim Jones? Who, who slept with the children of his followers, convinced them to give their children to him as young brides, slept with them, and then after he had had all of that fun and milked them for all that he could, gave them Kool-Aid that was laced with poison. Was that religion true? Surely not, right? We can all agree with that, right? Well, what about... The, the, the people that worshiped the idols of Molech back in the Old Testament times, they would beat the drums really loud so that you couldn't hear what was going on because they were throwing children into the fire and they wanted the drums to be so loud that you couldn't hear their screams because that would interrupt the worship service of their god Molech. We don't think that that god is right, do we? So it's not every religion. So where do you start drawing the lines? What about religions that won't let women drive? What about religions that won't let women uncover their face in public? Is that one right or no? Do we just cut the line off at people who sacrifice children or those who repress other races? Where is the line? And if we put ourselves in the position that I get to determine which religions are the major religions that are fundamentally right, we're saying I'm the one who gets to decide what is true and what is not. And that's a pretty arrogant claim. None of us want to put ourselves in the position of saying, this is the only way. But you know, we don't have to. Because Jesus did. He came and he said, I am the Son of God. And the only way that that's not an arrogant claim is if it's true. If it's real. So Jesus comes and he says, I am the Word of God. Jesus steps up to the plate and he says, I'll decide and I'll tell you what's true. In the time of Christ, there were people who were making major movements forward in the, in the areas of philosophy and astronomy and physics. They were observing things about the universe that no one had really observed yet. And they said that there's, maybe there's this, this system, this science, this law of nature that's behind everything. And they called it the Logos or the Word. And so in John, when he opens up his gospel talking to us about Jesus, he says, there is a Word. And he came down and dwelt among us and the Word put on flesh so that we could see him. And 14 chapters later, he tells that this, this word who came down and put on flesh so that we could see him, he told us that he is God. He made that claim. We read it earlier. He is God, and he is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. And either Jesus is God or he just painted himself into a corner. Because if all of the religions of the world are true, then Jesus is a liar. See, I think that most of us, we, we, we prefer a feel-good spirituality where, hey, listen, you believe that, that's great, this is what I believe, they believe that. If you, if you want to say that Jesus is a good guy, that you like him, you've got to come to the decision. Is Jesus a liar? Or maybe he didn't know what he was talking about, he's a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? Is he Lord of all? 
You see, Jesus was a very polarizing figure. In the Gospels, people either loved Jesus or they hated Jesus. They would leave everything to follow him or they'd do their best to throw him off a cliff. Because it was very clear they had to make a decision. Either he is who he says he is, or he's crazy, or a con man. This morning, you've got to decide. Which is it? It can't be both. Jesus makes these exclusive claims in his final meal with the disciples, and then he walks into the arrest that he knows is coming. He stands trial, and they ask him questions, and he doesn't defend himself. You know how hard that would be? I have a hard time not justifying my actions when I'm wrong. When I'm right, look out, buddy. I got charts and stats, and I will show you how right I am. (laughs) Jesus was absolutely right, and he did not attempt to justify himself. did not attempt to flee. He walked towards the cross, and he laid down his life. Why? Because he's the Lord of all who's come to take the sins of all. You see, Jesus makes these really exclusive claims, but then he laid down his life as a ransom for many or all. John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus' message is radically exclusive, but his gospel is incredibly universal. It's for everyone. There is no group of people that is exempt from the message of the gospel, no group of people that the gospel cannot change. He made exclusive claims, but then he laid down his life as a universal payment for sin for everyone. And whoever you are, and whatever you've done, and wherever you're from, and no matter what you have believed, you can have faith in Christ and be forgiven of your sins. And while it's radically exclusive, Jesus is the only way. It's amazingly inclusive because the gospel is offered to each and every one of us. And if this morning you come to the conclusion that he is Lord, grace is extended to you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that in this moment, that in this time of invitation, Lord, that you would speak to hearts, or that someone would come to the conclusion this morning that you are Lord. During this invitation, they would call on you in prayer, placing their faith in you as the Son of God, placing their faith in your sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see that we we must decide, but that we all have that opportunity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. If you would stand with me, we're going to sing in just a few moments, but as the piano begins to play, if God's working in your heart,